Good morning, church. My name is Brian Hoover. I have the privilege of reading the scripture today. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. You can follow along on the screens, or if you're using the Bible in the pew, that's on page 833. So it's John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is God's word. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Well, I, I said something about all the members, but I want to say, I said to you, Luke, but Carolina, thank you. Um, the longer I'm in one church, which I've been half of that time with you, as I said, uh, even a good church, I know how hard it is to stay in one church, to love even a healthy church. And um, that you were in the room with us these last two years, I think that, that count, they're like dog years. This was 14 years, the last two years. Of, of leading, and so thank you for that. Thank you. I hope you get some rest. Well, later in John's Gospel, uh, we started a new series in John's Gospel this summer, and later, we won't get to even chapter 5 this summer, but, but later in chapter 5, Jesus speaks back over John the Baptist and says these words, John, Jesus says, was a burning and shining lamp. And then he adds, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his heat. Again, John was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his heat, or excuse me, his light. Indeed, John was. John out there in the wilderness is shining the the light and heat of God's holiness and joy and forgiveness. And he did it against tremendous opposition. In another place, Jesus spoke of John as saying, among all those who have ever been born, quote, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, Matthew 11. Jesus said this because of the prominent ministry role that John had in getting people ready for Jesus. My question is, how, how did he do that? How did John have such a wonderful, faithful ministry in the face of tremendous opposition and great social upheaval? God, right? The answer, of course, is God. That's always the answer. God is the answer. But God helped John be John. But, but can we say more? Can we say something more specific? And I think we can. And what we're going to see that's true of John the Baptist, when it becomes true of us, it helps us become the people of God he's called us to be, even in the face of opposition. So as we turn our attention to God's word, would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we, we pause and we do ask 
even as I just said, that, that you would rivet our attention on your word. And Lord, you would be the God who, who once spoke and now continues even to speak for the building up of your church and your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes we see major life transitions as they're coming to us, even when they're a long ways off. I know high school seniors sometimes, you know, in the, at least by the spring of that year, they're counting down the days until they graduate. Sometimes, not just in their senior year, sometimes by their sophomore year, they're counting down the days until graduation. Some of you are doing the same with retirement. You have the date picked out. You know the number of days. Some of you, you have the, the wedding days. Okay, this, this many days until we get married. But just because you see the transition coming doesn't mean you're always ready for it. Some of you, you're ready to take that college student, you think, off to school and drop them off. And you think you're ready for it. You're not ready for it. And all that that means if you've been deployed to Afghanistan and you've seen combat, you're ready to come home, and yet you might not be ready to come home. Other transitions come out of nowhere. You know, one day you're healthy, then the next you're permanently disabled, and you, you can't do your same job. And, and, and what, what, what do we think about life and who I am? For some in our church over the last few years, one year you're married, and then the next year you're widowed. It's hard. Maybe you've had to change jobs because of the upheaval in the market or even not just jobs but careers. Maybe you're a kid and through no decision of your own, you had no say in this, but your parents got a new job and you got to move to a new city, new school, new friends, and all of that's hard. Other kids, your parents are getting divorced, you spend one night in this house, another night in another house, or maybe you're the parent who's getting divorced and you just attended a wedding for the first time without your spouse and it was so strange. All of these press us into this most basic of questions. Who am I? If I'm not in the military anymore where I have this rank and everyone follows my every command and now I've retired and no one follows any of my commands, who am I? Who am I in the workplace if I'm no longer in the workplace? I've done this thing for 40 years and now I don't do the thing. Who, who am I? Some of you are fresh into becoming stay-at-home moms and, and you've wanted this change and you've welcomed this change um, and yet the pastor who officiated your wedding never told you it would be this hard to be stuck in a house alone with a kid that can't talk back to you. It can only cry and you've got to decipher what frequency of cry this is and what it means and, and how we're supposed to respond. You think, who am I now that I change a dozen diapers a day when I used to negotiate million-dollar real estate deals. Right now, all of you probably will have noticed the symbols of Pride Month around us. LGBTQ things. I went to Chocolate World the other week with my family, and all the Twizzlers were repackaged in rainbow packages. And this is not a sermon on that, necessarily. But I just want to bring up one thing. Some of you in a church this large, we're not huge, but we're large enough that some of you are feeling within you rise up certain desires and passions. And you know they're, they're wrong or out of place in the Christian church and you don't know what to do with that and it's confusing. And what I want to say is so unhelpful about Pride Month 
is that it invites you to locate the center of gravity of who you are at your deepest level in what you perceive to be your most authentic sexual expression. Like, just, just think for a moment how unwise that is. Not to mention wrong. If we're going to put all of who we are into one place, is this where we would put it? Just this, this feeling that feels so fleeting? That's certainly what we're being told to do. So who are you? Who are we? Kind of the, the thesis behind the sermon this morning, I know we're just drag it out into this, you know, kind of put a neon sign around it called, this is the thesis of the sermon. But the thesis of the sermon this morning is, you will never be able to live for God in the way that God is calling you to live for him. In fact, the way that you want to live for him, if you don't know who you are. And not only who you are, but who you're not as well. In this passage of scripture, we see John the witness. He knows who he is, and he knows who he's not. And both of those are really important. It changes everything for him. Hopefully you have your Bible still open. Look with me at verse 19. So Brian read from us John chapter 1. Just going to re-go through a few of those verses here. John chapter 1. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, I should mention something just to avoid confusion. There are two Johns in the book of John here. There's a, the author of John. Now, in our church, we have two Bens. Ben was leading worship. Ben's now preaching a sermon, right? Two Johns are, or two Bens are different Bens. This is similar here. John, we've got John the author, the gospel of John. Now, he followed Jesus probably about 50 years after Jesus went to heaven, just followed Jesus faithfully, thinking about, okay, what is it I want to write and give to the people of God. And that, that's what he did. So we have the Gospel of John. But there's another John that shows up mostly at the beginning of the Gospel, often called John the Baptist in other books. Here he's identified more as John the Witness. There's no story of his birth, not unlike Jesus. John just jumps right, John the author just jumps right in. And we sort of have this form and function going together. John, as he comes out of nowhere, sort of comes out of nowhere. He's this wild man in the wilderness. He's from a priestly family, but he just shows up out of nowhere just calling people to repent. You see that in verse 19, that he's not in Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Jerusalem was the headquarters of religious thought. So John, we might say he's like this politician who, he's not coming up kind of through Washington, D.C., but he comes from, I don't know, Topeka, Kansas, or something like that, no offense if you're from Topeka, just picking somewhere. He's a country musician, not from Nashville, but Detroit, or something like that. And that's disruptive. They don't know what to do with this guy. They don't know him. In the religious establishment in Jerusalem, they, they're just not sure what to make from this guy to, from Topeka. And not to mention that he's just from the wrong place. He's calling good Jewish people towards repentance. Now, what does that mean? Imagine if when you leave church this morning, so I, some of you would have parked in the parking lot back there, others might have parked on the street over here, you come out this front door and there's a guy on the street corner yelling at all the people who just left church, you need to repent, right? That would feel a certain way, wouldn't it? Feel offensive, strange. All of that is what's happening here. So the religious leaders send people to check on him, or, or better we might say, to shake John down, to intimidate him. 
Look with me at verses 20 and 21. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And, and I think that doubling down, the tripling down, I think it's, it's just saying, okay, you're trying to intimidate me. I'm going all, I, I, my story's not, my witness, it's not going to change. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Notice it's the prophet, not a prophet. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they asked him, okay, who are you? And he says, I'm, his answer is, I'm not this guy, I'm not this guy, I'm not this guy. And we often think about the name Christ as a last name, as though, right, it's Jesus Christ, as though he's born of Mary Christ and Joseph Christ, and they have Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's, I, I don't mean to be silly, honestly, like it's Benjamin Verbachek, right? Mr. and Mrs. Verbachek have Benjamin. Christ was a title. Um, Jesus was, was kind of his birth name, so to speak, but Christ was this title, the, this long-awaited hope for a Messiah, the anointed one. And John's saying, I'm, I'm not him. I'm not that guy. And I don't want to go into all the other Old Testament passages, but, but for a moment, just let me explain that not the prophet, not the Elijah phrasing. The not the prophet, there was this expectation from words spoken from Moses. We just spent a lot of time in Exodus, but a couple books later, Deuteronomy, right before the people go into the promised land, Moses says, there's coming a prophet, the prophet. You need to listen to him. And so there was this expectation. Okay, when is the prophet going to show up? The New Testament says it's not John the Baptist, it's Jesus. Then there's this bit about Elijah. This is a little more tricky. Several possible meanings here for John to deny that he's Elijah, and exploring all of them would take us off field. But what I want to say is this. There was this expectation that right before the Messiah would come, there'd be this Elijah who comes and gets people ready and so if you, in a Bible, you just flip back to Malachi. You don't need to do it now, but like it's the last book of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. Malachi chapter four, the last words in the kind of the Old Testament says, there's an Elijah coming who's gonna get the people ready for the great day of the Lord. And so the people are going, okay, who's this Elijah? So that's why they're asking this question. John, are you this Elijah? And now what makes it tricky is John says no. Later, Jesus says he is the Elijah. So what's that? Again, this would, bring us off field to really explore. I think John is just saying, like, I'm not Elijah reincarnated. Like, I'm not Elijah, I'm John. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 but you had the kind of the spirit of Elijah, this, this getting people ready. Anyway, all that's interesting, I hope, in some way. But the main thing you need to say, or need to see, is that John's emphatic declaration, he knows who he is not. And even in saying he's not the Christ, it's interesting how he distances himself from Jesus. Like, it's like, okay, I am not the Christ, he's over there, and I, like, I'm not even, we'll read in verse 27, worthy to untie his sandal. That's not normally how you treat kind of famous people when you sort of kind of know someone, right? Like, oh, I know so-and-so, like, we went to work, we we're back to college together, we were in the fraternity, like, oh yeah, we're buddies, we had dinner once, Right? John is doing the exact opposite. They're even cousins. He doesn't mention any of that. Look at verse 22, finally, and 23. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. 
Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You can feel just a little bit the power structure and the intimidation here in verse 22. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Right? You get the sense that these guys sent from the Pharisees are saying, these are not the sort of people you go back to and don't give an answer to. And probably the answer they want to hear. And John says, I, I'm not going to give you that answer but he does give an answer. And and I'm confident everyone you've ever met and said, hey, who are you? Introduce yourself to me. We had new members on the stage. Introduce yourself to us. Like, no one you've ever met has said, when you, tell us who you are, they've quoted a 700-year-old prophecy. and said, that's me. Right? No, you've never had that happen. And that's exactly what John does. He's a voice. A voice in the wilderness. The wilderness yeah, it's, it's, it's a physical location, but the, this, the wilderness was theological as well. He's outside the mainstream. He's calling the people of God away from decadence, away from sin, toward holiness, towards what we would say the straight and narrow. And there's more we could say about John, and we will in the coming weeks, but the thing I want to come back to is just John knew who he was and who he wasn't. And everything I'm saying, everything I'm saying, while it could feel to us as academic or theological or, well, maybe that's important stuff for a book, that's not how John received it. For him, knowing who he was and who he wasn't allowed him to be unintimidated by the opposition. Knowing who he was, I'm a mere voice, getting people ready. Knowing who he's not, I'm not the Christ allowed him to confidently follow in the mission of God. So, question, who are you? Who are we? And who are we not? Who are you not? When I was in school to be a pastor, I had a classmate who who had a tattoo on his forearm um, that said, Ego uk emi ha Christos. I am not the Christ, John 1.20. That's what I'm just for him. Now, if you're a pastor, you can't get a tattoo in English. Right? You gotta, it's more cool if you get it in Greek, right? It's, that's what, spent all this time studying Greek. I got, I'm going to get my tattoos in Greek. Um, there's this particular temptation for those in ministry to want to be the fixer, the savior, the Christ, when we just can't. I can be a good shepherd. Lukeman has been a good shepherd. David, I'm not sure what pastor elders are in here in the service. But, but we, we have tried our best to be good shepherds, but we're not the good shepherd. And part of our being a good shepherd to you is reminding you from time to time, as if you couldn't already tell, we're not the good shepherd. But this temptation to be the Savior is not unique to those in ministry. When your life is spinning out of control, there's probably something that rises up within you and says, I got this, I can fix this, I can hold it together. I can hold my world together. Which are words spoken of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. He holds the universe together with the word of his power. Not you. And it might be part of the craziness of your life. Might be, I don't know, I'm not a prophet either. 
But it might be that part of the craziness of your life is to be a small reminder to you that you are not the Christ, but there is one who is. How well do you sleep at night? There are plenty of biological reasons in different seasons of life or different situations in life when you might not be sleeping well for a host of different reasons. If you just had a young child, you're not going to sleep well for probably several months. But there might also be spiritual reasons you don't sleep well. Or I could say unspiritual reasons you don't sleep well. For those who try to be the Messiah but aren't, you're not going to sleep well. Either because you're anxious about everything or because you feel like, i got, I got to stay up late to work hard, i got to get up early to work hard because it all hangs on me. Those who know they're not the Messiah but know that the Messiah loves them, they might, all things being equal, sleep well. And I realize many of us would say, okay, yeah, amen, amen. But let me make it just a little bit harder. Some of you have walked with Christ for many years. Even in this church, Lukeman's been here two decades. That's a wonderful thing. You know who you are and who you're not, but let me just press it a bit further. How many of you, though you've walked, I don't mean those of you who have been walking with Jesus five minutes, but how, how many of you who say, yeah, I, I'm a mature Christian, and yet, you can give three reasons exactly why you should feel this or that way about every controversy, gun control, medical things, sport things, whatever it would be, whatever's going on, you have three reasons why you should feel exactly the way you should about this or that, and yet you can't give three reasons why Jesus rose from the dead. Like that, that tells me you don't know who you are. Not as you ought. Not as you are. But the peace and comfort of knowing who God is and who you are is what this passage is offering you this morning. Look how the passage ends, 25, 26, 27. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I I baptize you with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And here in the sermon, we need to shift our focus away from John to John's Christ, to John's Savior. John told these religious leaders that there was one standing among them who they did not know. Now, when he says that, he's poking their ignorance. He said, you don't know. But he's also making an invitation This one you do not know, you can know. He's right here among you. Just open your eyes. John knows who he is and who he's not. And John knows he's merely a voice. He's not the Christ. But that's not all. He knows himself rightly in relationship to Jesus. I'm not even... Like his sandals, I'm not worthy to untie. That probably doesn't communicate to us the way it did to all of them. What John is saying is, I'm not worthy to to clean the toilets of Jesus. And he's not wrong. But this is where it gets good. This Christ, this prophet, the one who has all honor and all glory, is the one who stoops down to the lowly. This is why he came. There's not a disciple here. There's not a pastor, elder here who's worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And yet, what do we read in the Gospels? Before Jesus is crucified, 
He takes off his robe and he puts on the robe of the servant. And he gets down and he washes his disciples' feet, untying their sandals. What a savior. If you know you're a sinner and you need Christ because you are not the Christ, the good news of this passage is that you can have him. And if you already have him, but you are that sort of person, which is all of us who tend to forget who you are and who he is, the good news of this passage is he is pleased to remind you. We'll end our sermon this morning in the worship service by participating in communion. John says he's unworthy to untie Jesus' sandal. In communion, consider what kind of practice Jesus has given the church. Consider if instead the ongoing practice of the early church that Jesus had given them and given us had been a moment in a church service where everyone comes forward and there's a statue of Jesus and we all go and we touch the bottom of his sandal just to show we're unworthy. That would be true, and it would communicate something true to us. But in communion, we have something more than something just true. We have good news. We have displayed before us the truth that though we are unworthy of Christ, he gives us to himself all of him for all of you, sinners being invited to feast at the table of the forgiven. In a moment, I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come up and lead us in two songs. During the first song, when you're ready, you, you, I'm going to have you come down the center aisle. Um, you can grab the juice, and if you just kind of hold out a hand, we'll drop the bread into your hand. I know it's the time we're reaching into the same basket as still a thing, but we'll, we'll, we'll hand you the communion elements. If you just hang on to it and return to your seat, then we'll all participate in eating it together. You don't have to be a, I know we had new members of this church this morning. You don't have to be a member of this church. This could be your first time visiting. Uh, you're welcome to participate. The only thing you need to do is be saying, these two things are true of me. I'm a sinner and Jesus loves me. If you're saying that, then communion is for you. If you're not able to come forward, I'm, I'm going to serve the worship team and then just kind of make eye contact with me and I can bring communion to you. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning... as we come forward to your table, we, we, we thank you for the reminder that though we are not what we ought to be, you love us. And you are a wonderful, powerful, worthy Savior who delights to draw near to your people. We thank you in his name we pray.